Greetings, and welcome to Ed Times Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We started a new series a couple weeks ago, but a lot of you weren't here because it was Thanksgiving weekend. We had a lot of people out of town or sick or traveling. And so we're going to uh, replay our special introduction song that we, we, we had two weeks ago for this new series. So we're going we're to put it up on the, on the YouTube again. If you feel like all could play that, please. And so as you hopefully can tell by that song, we're in a new series on marriage and the family. Today's part two. And today I want to talk about the meaning and the purpose of marriage. And if you missed part one, a lot of you did, uh, it was on what a young woman should look for in a husband and whatever young man should aspire to be. If you missed it, I strongly urge you to listen to it either on YouTube or iTunes or, or Facebook or our website. So we've got four places you can find it on. Now, why a series on marriage and the family? Well, statistically, the vast majority of you here in this room who are hearing my voice are either married or one day will be married. But statistically, unless you do something different from the way our culture does things, including even the subculture uh, within the, the body of Messiah, only about half of you statistically will stay married. And that should alarm every one of us. Statistically, if you do things the way we normally do things in our culture, whether you're a believer or not, no more than half of you who got married will stay married. That's why this topic is so important. And we're going to start today from the beginning. So I'll turn with you to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and we'll have it on the overhead as well. The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, suitable for him. Now the Lord God has formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Let me pause right here. How smart do you think Adam had to be to name all those animals? So think about it. How many animals could you decide what to name them just by looking at them? Now, for me, I think I'd run out of, run out of ideas pretty quickly. <laughs> um, that's a four-footed crawling thing. <laughs> that's a slightly larger four-footed, four-footed crawling thing. <laughs> all right, just go on. Genesis 2, verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper could be found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of his, the man's ribs and closed up the place of his flesh. Then the Lord God fashioned a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and brought her to the man. Uh, by the way, I, I love that, the way it's phrased in the Hebrew here. Adam, God just made, but the woman he fashioned. Literally in the Hebrew, he built. <laughs> She's a work of art. <laughs> Thank you, Yeshua. <laughs> Genesis 2.23, the man said, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> This is bone of my bones, it's flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, because she was taken out of Ish. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become a chad one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, 
and not ashamed. Let's see several principles from this foundational passage about marriage. And the first is this, to put it on the overhead. The first principle is this. Marriage was God's idea. Adam did not just think this up. In fact, Adam had no clue. This was God's idea. God says, Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now think about this. Every day in creation, God said two things. Every day, every day of the six days of creation, he said, let there be, and it is good. Every day for six days, God says, let there be, and it is good. The first time God says something is not good is when he looks at man by himself. And he says in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make for him a helper suitable for him. Marriage is God's idea. So we need to think about it God's way and do it God's way. Man did not invent marriage. God ordained it. It's the first and the most foundational institution that God has given to us. But God, overhead, God gave us three institutions, uh, marriage and family, number one. Number two, the body of Messiah, the holy congregation. And number three, government. And the family is the foundation to the other two. Marriage and family are, are the foundations upon which all the other institutions of God are built. It's God's idea. And that means it's holy and sacred and good. And was, by the way, it was God's idea before the fall. It's not just some reaction to the fall. Uh, in an otherwise perfect world, God saw there was not good for man without marriage. Again, Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone, but make for him a helper suitable for him. Since marriage is God's idea, the purposes for marriage must also come from God. There are two basic biblical purposes for marriage. I'll put this on the overhead. Number one, procreation. Have babies. Lots of them. <laughs> and train them in righteousness. Train them in godliness. That's purpose number one. By the way, the text says, I'll make him one to come along uh, and be his corresponding part. I'll make him one to come alongside him and complete him. I'll make him one to come alongside him so, so that he can accomplish what he's called to do that he cannot accomplish on his own. Well, was Eve needed to help Adam name the animals? No. He did that all by himself. Was she created to help him tend the garden? No. Adam did that all by himself. The one thing that this brother couldn't do, and he wasn't going to think about it on his own, was how to make babies. <laughs> so the first thing, the first God-given purpose of marriage is procreation. God commanded them, Genesis 1.26, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And the idea here is not merely that we bring children into the world, the idea, again on the overhead, the idea is, what, is that we bring children into the world and raise them in the fear and nurture uh, and instruction and admonition of the Lord. So that we would spread God's image throughout the earth and therefore extend godliness through our descendants even further than we could ever do it on our own by ourselves. And pass on this legacy of following uh, and walking and communing with the Lord the door by door, from generation to generation. That's what procreation is all about. And I strongly encourage you, by the way, to have family worship at your home on a regular basis. 
Uh, and one of the many, many, many benefits of this is that when you come here to Shabbat services, your children will already know how to enter into, into corporate worship, uh, and you'll also be increasing their attention span by training them at home. Our children are a blessing and an inheritance from the Lord. So, so by the way, don't disparage, like so many people in our culture do today, do not disparage families with lots of children. They're a blessing. I heard a guy who had three kids, he and the last one, Miney. Miney? Yeah. He says, eeny, meeny, miney, and have it no more. <laughs> so I would like to have asked him, Brother, if your boss came to you three times to give you a raise and to bless you and to give you a promotion and he blesses you, and then he comes to you a fourth time, he tries to give you a raise and give a promotion and bless you, would you say to him, now hold on, sir. You already gave me a raise and a promotion and then blessed me three times. Don't you dare try to bless me a fourth time. <laughs> well, of course not. Well, isn't that interesting? Because the Bible says this in Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Children are a blessing and an inheritance from the Lord. So why would you say to God, no thanks? Our attitude towards children in this culture is so unbiblical. Elizabeth and I, we lost our first child to a miscarriage, and then we had two daughters. Elizabeth wanted more children, but back then I bought into the lie of our culture, and I said that was enough. Do not make the same mistake that I made. Have as many kids as the Lord puts on your heart, and that's where we train them in the fear and instruction of the Lord, so that they can then be launched like ballistic missiles into this lost and dying world. To be the Lord's sent ones to model and proclaim his good news of salvation in Messiah Yeshua to all the earth. Amen. The second purpose of marriage, put this on the over the second purpose of marriage is illustration. So number one, procreation. Number two, illustration. What's that? That's the overhead. Uh, to be, illustration is to be a living example of the relationship between Yeshua and his holy congregation, his bride. That's the picture we see in Ephesians 5. The husband and wife being a living illustration of the relationship between Messiah and his people. Now, if I believe that marriage is all about me uh, and my happiness, then when I'm not happy, I walk. And in marital counseling, I hear this all the time. I'm leaving. Why? Uh, because I'm not happy anymore. Uh, and I don't believe that God would want me unhappy. Well, there's two purposes for marriage in the Scriptures. And by the way, you're happy. This is not one of them. <laughs> so go work it out. <laughs> if I look at marriage selfishly, that becomes my attitude. Uh, when I'm not happy anymore, when I'm not satisfied anymore, when I'm not fulfilled anymore, I'm ready to walk away. But if I understand that marriage is to be an illustration, a, a picture of the relationship between Messiah and his bride, then I understand I'm here for the long haul. And I am faithful even as Messiah is faithful to his bride. This understanding of the meaning and purpose of marriage, it changes everything. And it also changes what we look for in a future mate. If you're just looking for someone who looks real good, real fine, 
I want you to know two important things. Number one, they don't stay that way. <laughs> For example, I used to have hair. <laughs> and number two, they don't stay that way. <laughs> there are so many things more important in life than that. <laughs> and there are lots of people who are willing to compromise on the more important things because somebody looked good, and now years later they bitterly regret it. If you understand that marriage, biblically, is about, number one, procreation of a godly line of descendants, and number two, illustration of us being a living, breathing example of the relationship between Yeshua and his bride, then it will completely change the way in which you look for a mate and the things you look for in a mate. Genesis 2.19 And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, he brought them to the man to see what he'd named them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that became its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, uh, no suitable helper could be found. Here's a second principle. I'll put this on the overhead. God's the one who causes us to desire marriage. Adam didn't even know he was alone. He didn't know what alone was. He had no idea that he needed a corresponding part. God is the one who made him aware. Well, how did God do this? By giving Adam an assignment. God says, Adam, I want you to name all the animals. So Adam starts naming the animals, and then something funny happens while he's naming the animals. Adam says, okay, that's, uh, I'm going to name this one a gorilla. Uh, and that's a, a he-gorilla and a she-gorilla. Uh, and there's an alligator, and there's a crocodile. You can tell them apart because one's head is a bit slightly larger than the other one's head. Uh, there's a he-alligator and a she-alligator, uh, and a he-crocodile and a she-crocodile. And that's an elephant right there. That's a he-elephant uh, and a she-elephant. Hey, wait a minute, God. <laughs> Everybody's got a, a corresponding part except me. <laughs> None of them are suitable for me. Adam didn't realize he was alone until he started to name the animals. On the overhead... God is the one who awakens within us a yearning and a desire to be married. And at the right time, and with the right qualifications, which we talked about last time, that's a good thing. God made, my, God made Adam want a wife. And that's a good thing. Look at Proverbs 18, uh, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains, obtains favor from the Lord. And let me tell you, my wife Elizabeth is such a blessing. You know, I have a list of everything I thought I wanted in a godly wife. But God is so good, he put into her all sorts of other gifts and other talents that I didn't even know enough to ask for in my list. <laughs> and we started out just as friends, nothing more. But God spoke to her one day and told her that she was going to marry me. And then the Lord slowly awakened within me the same desire. That word from the Lord was then surely tested when we broke off our, our relationship uh, for in our pursuit of one another for, for about a year. But God is faithful and brought the reestablishment of that relationship back uh, and then our engagement uh, and our marriage all in his perfect time. The point is, marriage is God's idea. He's the one who determines its purposes. And he's the one who creates within us a yearning for it at the right time with the right person. Genesis two twenty one. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs 
uh, and closed up the place of the flesh. Then the Lord God fashioned a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. In the Hebrew, if you look at the actual Hebrew here, the sense is that Adam was very, very pleased. Now, he was happy. Uh, when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. And God desires to give you the best. But we have no idea what that means. Our culture says, to, to, to women, our culture says, the best is the one with the right degree from the right school who will have the right job so that I can live in the right house in the right neighborhood. And to the man, our culture says, the best is a woman who looks like a movie star or, or a fashion model who impress all your friends uh, with her amazing looks. That's what our world says. But when you understand what the scriptures say, the purposes of marriage, uh, the best is something completely different. And as you pursue a spouse with these provisions in mind, or if you're already married, as you nurture and encourage your spouse in these areas, you'll come to see more and more that marriage is a gift from God. And even in difficult and hard times in a marriage, and every marriage has them, God uses that. Uh, I know that God has used that in my own life to show me my pride and my selfishness and my shortcomings, and to chip away at these defects in me, and to mold me and shape me, and hopefully make me into a better person, a better man. And I wouldn't trade even my worst day with Elizabeth. I wouldn't trade that for a dream date uh, uh, with anyone in the whole world. <laughs> because Elizabeth is an amazing gift to me from the Almighty God. And she's exactly what I need. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and unashamed. This speaks to how the marriage relationship is supposed to transcend all other human relationships. For this cause, a man shall leave his mother and his father, which are leave and cleave. When mar when, upon marriage, we're to leave our parents' home and cleave to our spouse. The marriage relationship is to transcend all other human relationships, including even the relationship with your children, uh, and, and especially uh, the relationship with your friends. So if you single guys are used to hanging out with your guy friends, and sing, you single girls are used to hanging out with your girlfriends, all of that has to take a back seat once you're married, because you've now found something much better, way better that transcends all other human relationships. How important is marriage and the family to God? It was interesting that, that for leading God's people in the Scriptures, he lists only two main requirements or skills uh, for, for being uh, a leader in the congregation. Uh, number one, you're able to teach. And number two, you're able to manage your own household. Those are God's priorities, marriage and family. Not how smart you are, or how successful, or how many, how many books you've read, or how many universities or seminaries you went to, or how many degrees are after your name, or how many foreign language skills you have, or, or, or your musical ability, but your marriage and your family. And that's enough to keep all of us humble. Amen? You want to know something? You want to know somebody's flaws? Just ask their wife. Ask their children. You know, because there are lots of things that we can easily hide from one another. 
but we cannot hide them from our wife and from our children. And over time, hopefully, God's priorities become our priorities. Now, think about how your priorities change over time. You know, when I was in high school, my biggest priority, I wanted to be known as, I was on the football team. Right? Even as a small kid. <laughs> in college, I wanted to be known for being on the dean's list. In law school, for being on the law review. Uh, and then uh, as a partner in a national law firm. And then I, I wanted to be known as a pastor or a rabbi. But today, I most of all want to be known as, the, as a husband and a father who raised my family in the Lord. At the end of my life, to be able to look at Elizabeth and say to her, I was faithful to you, and I loved you with all my heart. With anything else in the whole world, that's what I want. And my prayer for you is this will be your priority as well. And that you do not buy into the lies of our culture and that says that marriage is just some kind of business merger. I think you would not buy into the lies of our culture that says that marriage is only temporary. You would not buy into the lies of our culture that says that marriage is all about you and how you, you can be satisfied and comfortable. And you would not buy into the lies of our culture that says that marriage is about you finding them the best-looking person you can find as your personal trophy. But that you would grab a hold of the concept that God desires to use your marriage and your family or if you're not yet married, to use your future marriage and family for His glory and honor. And to be an illustration of the relationship between Messiah and His Holy Bride. Amen. And it's within this primary purpose of marriage that we find the biblical roles of the husband and wife. So turn with me to Ephesians 5.25. We're going to see the biblical roles of husband and wife. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, Love your wives. Thus the Messiah loved his holy congregation, his bride, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water of the word, that he may present to her to, her, to himself as a radiant bride, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but, but feeds and cares for their body. Just as Messiah does for his body, the holy congregation, for we are members of his body. And then it quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Messiah and his bride, the holy congregation. However, each of you uh, also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And the scriptures, by the way, make it very clear that the husband is the head of the house in a marriage. Look at Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Messiah is the head of the holy congregation, his body, of which he's the Savior. Okay, but what, did, what does this concept of headship actually mean uh, in a marriage? That's what we just, the, the passage we just read from verses 25 to 33 uh, are all about. And first of all, headship, by the way, is not about some kind of macho dictatorship. You know, me man, you woman, uh, me say, you do. <laughs> no, that is not biblical headship. Properly leading a home as a biblical husband is a heavy responsibility. I'll put this on the overhead. 
and it's based on a Messiah-like, self-sacrificial love and servanthood, as this passage in Ephesians 5.25-33 spells out. So on the overhead again, my responsibility as a husband, man, your responsibility as a husband is to lead your home like Yeshua leads his holy congregation, his body. That's what biblical headship is about. And, and by the way, there can only be one head. Anything with two heads is a monster. You either kill it or you put it behind bars and stare at it. <laughs> you can only be one head. But God says, and God says, by the way, the husband is the head of his home and his family. But what does that mean? On the overhead, the first thing it means is this. As a husband, it's my responsibility to lead in love. Again, my responsibility as a husband to lead in love. My job is to be the lead lover in my house. But here's the problem. We've been lied to by our culture about what actually is love. And we've bought into what I'm going to call uh, the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. And so when we talk about love, whether we realize it or not, we're often talking about, on the overhead, uh, this Greco-Roman myth that has at its center this little god called Cupid, right? And Cupid is this chubby little cherub that shoots you with his arrow, right? And when you're struck by his arrow, there's this overwhelming passion that overtakes you. And you begin to say strange things, like, this thing is bigger than both of us. Or, we don't choose who we fall in love with. Or how about this one? This is one that Woody Allen used to justify sleeping with his stepdaughter. The heart wants what the heart wants. And this is what we believe is love in this culture. And even within the body of Messiah, that's what we believe. That some overwhelming force will just strike you, and when it happens, there's nothing you can do about it. You're just hopelessly drawn along by this force. And so we have phrases like, follow your heart. Well, what does the Bible say about following your heart? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says the heart is wicked and not to be trusted. The Bible says do not follow your heart. Without realizing it, we have bought into the Greco-Roman pagan myth of romantic love. And when we believe in that myth, we've got several problems. Here's problem number one on the overhead. If that's what love is, if love is just this overwhelming force, and the heart just wants what the heart wants, and if it's uncontrollable, uh, and if we don't choose who we fall in love with, and it's bigger than both of us, if that's what love truly is, then no marriage is safe. If that's true, think about it. What if, what if next week, uh, I'm sitting down at an airplane, and this beautiful woman sits next to me, and she starts to flirt with me. She's flirting with me. Pretty unlikely, I know, but, but, but work with me here. You know, <laughs> alternative, alternative reality sci-fi show. <laughs> and what if all of a sudden Cupid strikes me? And this thing's bigger than both of us. And, and we don't choose who we fall in love with. And the heart wants what the heart wants. If that's what love is, my marriage is not safe. No marriage is. And what if it happens to my wife? And then she texts me, David, I've met someone. And this thing is bigger than both of us. And we don't choose who we fall in love with. The heart wants what it wants. Do you see this problem with the definition of love? We bought the lie of the Greco-Roman pagan myth of romantic love. 
And as I've just tried to hopefully shown you, this kind of love is fragile and fickle and unstable and unfaithful. And our pagan culture has therefore had to create another myth, another idea for this in the overhead, to go along with it. The idea of the one, 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 one. <laughs> and so we bounce from one Greco-Roman pagan myth to another. And we bounce from one relationship to another, being overwhelmed by this force, hoping that this time we finally found the one, 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 one. <laughs> because when you finally find him, when you finally find her, then the cycle is supposed to end, right? Like this karmic, karmic cycle. <laughs> My holy brothers and sisters, this concept is unbiblical as well as ridiculous. These assumptions are not based on the Bible. If we buy into the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love, we're, we're hopeless. And we'll never feel secure in our marriage. Or we'll be too scared to ever get married. Here's another problem with this idea of the one. We'll put this on the overhead. You can never know it, objectively. And so all of a sudden, a couple of years into your marriage, things get difficult. Why? Because living with another person is difficult. Dying to yourself is difficult. And you start having kids... Uh, and living without too much sleep when the kids are young. And, and, and the romance is not at the same level as it was when you were newlywed. But if you bought into this Greco-Roman pagan myth of romantic love and this concept of the one, 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 you immediately, you immediately start to think, I must have married the wrong one. Because you've got this completely idealized, unbiblical view of what love is. So the moment you don't feel this overwhelming chemical reaction anymore, your immediate thought is, that must have been the wrong one. Because you can never know objectively under this view, the so-called one. Because people aren't walking around with numbers in their foreheads that you can match up to your number. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. There is no objective way for you to ever know if this unique one is the, the only one in the world uniquely for you. So we've got, I've got two problems in the overhead with this Greco-Roman myth. Number one, no marriage is ever secure if that's what love really is. And number two, you'll never know if you found the one if that's what love really is. Here's problem number three on the overhead. This kind of love also is not what I'm going to call transferable to other people in your family. So two people fall in love, they get married, they get pregnant. Uh, the husband and the wife, or both of them, are then afraid... How am I ever going to know if I can love this baby? I mean, we love each other, but are we going to have enough love left over for this baby? Because, it's all, it's, because love is just this unpredictable, uncontrollable force. And then you get pregnant with baby number two. And you say, well, we love each other, we love baby number one, but how are, we ever going to, are we ever going to love baby number two equally as much? What if baby number two is born... And Cupid doesn't strike us in the same way as he did with baby number one. You see, the Greco-Roman myth does not work. It's not transferable type of love. Here's the fourth problem in the overhead. If love is just an overwhelming, unpredictable, ungovernable force, that explains why a lot of you wonder if God still loves you. Because you don't feel the same way about God as you did yesterday, or last week, or last month. And so there must be something wrong with God. Or there must be something wrong with you. All because we bought into a lie. The Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. This overwhelming force. 
But the good news is that's not what love is. And so when we look at Ephesians 5, we see that the husband's primary responsibility is to lead in love. So therefore, the first thing we need to do is to find, is to define what love is biblically. And it's not the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives. Just as Messiah loved the holy congregation, his bride, and gave himself up for her. So let's look at a biblical definition of love. Uh, number one in the overhead, Yeshua is our model for what love is. Yeshua doesn't love us as people because we're so fine. <laughs> Yeshua doesn't love us because it makes him happy. Yeshua loves us because he loves us, his bride. And he has a covenant with his bride. He chooses, as an act of his will, to love his called-out people, his followers. It's not some overwhelming emotion that he has to try to somehow sustain over the years. It's not some overwhelming force that struck him one day and convinced him to give up his life on our behalf, on behalf of his bride. No. It's an act of his will to love us. Yeshua is our model in his self-sacrificial love for his people. Here's the definition of love I want us to consider. It's based on Matthew 22 and Deuteronomy 6. Let's look at those verses first. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And then Yeshua paraphrases it in Matthew 22, 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and foremost command. If you notice, Yeshua adds this definition, uh, to this definition the concept of the mind. And by the way, he's, he, when he does that, he's conveying a very Jewish, very Hebraic concept. Uh, let me give you, based on this, my definition of love, and then we'll see how it applies in this context. So here's the here's definition. Biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Again, biblical love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Biblical love is an act of the will. That means it's a choice. We do choose. It's accompanied by emotion, meaning it's not void of emotion, but it's also not led by emotion. And it leads to action on behalf of its object. We're going to tease all this out in a moment. Again, Yeshua is our model for this kind of love. So think about Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 39, the famous prayer, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Yeshua, the night before his crucifixion, Pesach night, he prays to be delivered from this cup of God's wrath. He doesn't feel like going to the cross. But he prays, nonetheless, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. Yeshua makes a choice to drink the cup of wrath on our behalf. It was an act of his will. He chose to love us with his ultimate, self-sacrificial, altruistic, servant love. This choice was accompanied by emotion. In fact, the emotion so intense that he sweated great drops of blood, it says. And this love led to action on behalf of its object. He went to the execution stake. He went to the tree for us the next day. It led to action. 
And he still didn't do it because, because it made him feel good about himself. He did it because it was the only way for his bride to be redeemed. That is biblical love. Not a whimsical Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. On the overhead, biblical love lasts. It's stable. It stays. It's the only thing that can properly serve as a sure foundation upon which a marriage can be built. The Greco-Roman myth is not so. You cannot, on the overhead, you cannot build a solid, lasting marriage on the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love. It doesn't work. That's why you have, you have so many divorces today with the excuse, well, I just fell out of love. People today who are married 20, 25, 30, 35 years, they say, we fell out of love because they had the wrong definition of love. And the overhead, first, love is an act of the will. The kind of love that a husband is supposed to lead in is a love that begins with the will. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, Love the Lord with all, all your heart. And he breaks the term heart refers not only to your emotions, but your whole being, mind, will, emotions, all of you, starting with your volition, with your will. So we love as an act of our will. It's a choice. Now, in contrast, in our culture, we usually enter into a relationship with someone because they're cute, and we like their company, and they make us feel all tingly inside. And then we get, we get emotionally involved with that person, right? And, and sometimes physically involved if we're not careful. We don't, have, don't set up proper boundaries to protect each other's purity. And then we step back and we say, is this the one, 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 one? And of course, by then it's too late, often. And we make decisions based not on biblical criteria, but on emotions. That's what happens when you lead with something other than your will. And so if any single person hearing my voice, uh, if you're in a relationship with someone that you know you have no business wasting your time with, and especially if they're not a committed Yeshua follower, what I'm going to tell you right now is get out. Get out before it's too late. And I always chuckle, oh, I hear how people try to dance around the fact that they're dating a non-believer. And they'll say all sorts of little cute little things like, well, he says he believes. Perhaps he's not quite as spiritual as I am or as I would like him to be. He's not really into church or synagogue or the Bible. Just be honest. The guy's a pagan. <laughs> he doesn't know God. He doesn't walk with Yeshua. But he looks so fine, it's hard for you to give him up, right? <laughs> Just be honest at least. Love is an act of the will. You do choose. And there's some people you have no business choosing to be with. Now, this should not even be a debatable question. It's pretty black and white, actually. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be bound together, literally in the Greek, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness uh, with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Messiah and Belial, the name for the devil? What is the believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are in the temple of the living God. Now, can the scriptures be any more clear than that? If you're a believer, 
You are only to marry in the Lord. As we talked about last time, addressing you single women, only to someone who's also qualified to be the priest and the prophet of your home. So if he is not a strong, committed believer, uh, I'm addressing now you single women, you have no business dating or courting him. No business. And the same goes in reverse for you single guys. If she is not a sold-out believer, she should not even be on your radar screen. How can you expect God to bless a relationship that's directly contrary to his word? Why would you expect God to bless your disobedience, which is sin? He will not bless your sin. God says clearly you should not be unequally yoked to a non-believer, meaning anyone who's not a born-again, blood-bought, spirit-empowered, new creation in Messiah Yeshua. And do you know why we try to justify these relationships with scripturally unqualified people? We justify them because we've bought into the Greco-Roman myth. So if love is just this uncontrollable force, and we don't choose who we fall in love with, uh, we think, well, God must approve because he wouldn't have allowed me to fall in love with this unbeliever unless he was implicitly blessing it. Now, if that's your reasoning, help you. (laughs) Because the Greco-Roman myth of romantic love is not the biblical definition of love. The biblical concept is you lead with the will, and you guard yourself, and you protect yourself from getting involved with people who do not qualify. And young woman, make sure you don't get invested with someone who has a history of hopping from one relationship to another. These players, right? Because the heart wants what the heart wants. It's a signal he's sending you. And young women, you put this on the overhead, look for someone who at first keeps you at arm's length and won't allow you to jeopardize your feelings by getting involved too quickly before you make sure of these three things. Number one, that you are equally yoked. Number two, you're both ready to enter into a biblical relationship that's heading towards marriage. And number three, that has your father's approval. Otherwise, you're both just wasting your time and defrauding one another by investing your heart on something that has no future. So keep trusting the Lord to bring bring to you the right person at the right time. You lead with the will. It is a choice. Because there will be difficult days in your marriage, trust me. And it's the will that gets you through these difficult days. The Greco-Roman myth of romantic love cannot and will not get you through these difficult days and these inevitable struggles. Cupid won't help you when you have a fight with your spouse. It's the commitment to your marriage as an act of the will that gets you through. It's a husband and wife that say to each other, I choose to love you with all my heart for the rest of our lives together. That's what you're looking for in a biblical spouse. And the overhead. A biblical love leads with the act of the will. That's number one. And it's accompanied by emotion. That's number two. It's not led by emotion. It's not some roller coaster of emotion. But it's accompanied by emotion. Not void of emotion. There must also be genuine emotion and true biblical love. No relationship should be built just on emotion because that comes and goes. Biblical love is, number one, an act of the will. Number two, accompanied by emotion. And number three, which leads to action on behalf of its object. Ladies, 
You're looking for a man whose love for you is not based on your ability to satisfy him. You're looking for a man who understands that his role as a husband is to lay down his life for you. Ladies, until you have found that man, you have not found someone worthy to be your husband. Husbands must lead you in biblical love, an act of the will, accompanied by emotion, that leads to action on behalf of its object. That's what you single women need to be looking for in a husband. Sadly, I know a lot of women who have been caught up in this whirlwind of romance, uh, and that, that they knew that this guy was not biblically qualified, but they were so invested in the relationship by that time that they got married anyways. And now they're living with regret every day because they got what they asked for. They insisted to God that they get this one. And so God said, fine, you've got him. And now later she complains bitterly to God, and God says, he's exactly what you asked for. You start off thinking, oh, I've got a good deal. And then it turns into an ordeal. And now you want a new deal. <laughs> Don't go down that road. <laughs> Do not fall for this trap of this thing is bigger than both of us. We don't choose who we fall in love with. The heart wants what the heart wants. That's, those cultural cliches are unbiblical. And they'll destroy your life if you give in to them. Ladies, look and pray and trust God for a man who leads in biblical love. And do not settle for anything less. Single men, let your goal be to press into the Lord so that you can lead with that kind of biblical love. And to be the priest and the prophet and the provider and the protector of your home. On the flip side, ladies, when you find such a man, hold on tight. <laughs> Don't let go. <laughs> because walking in biblical love, an act of the will, by biblically qualified young men and women, a young man is able to function again as the priest and prophet and provider and protector of his home, like we talked about last time, which is accompanied by feelings and emotion between the two of you that leads to a biblically-based action, including self-sacrificial servant leadership on behalf, on behalf of the man. This is the foundation that leads to solid, lasting, God-blessed marriages. Amen? We'll continue next time. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Music team, come on up. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for your amazing love for us. Thank you, Yeshua, for modeling true biblical love for us. You did not have to come and die for us, Yeshua, but you chose to. Your love was an act of the will. Your love, Yeshua, was accompanied by emotion. You wept over Jerusalem. And your love led to action on behalf of its object. You spread out your arms on the cross like a mother hen spreads out her wings over her chicks. And you yearned to gather your people Israel in your arms. And sadly, many would not at the time. But nonetheless, Yeshua, your love is fierce and steadfast and long-suffering and faithful. And you will return and you will gather your people to yourself. You, Yeshua, lay down your life for your bride. Help us now, Lord, to be that faithful bride. 
Help us to model that love in our own marriages and future marriages as we lay down our lives for our spouses. For those of us who are not yet married, help prepare us to be the godly husband and the godly wife that you want us to be walking in biblical, self-sacrificial love. Teach us, Lord, to have and to live that kind of love and to build our marriages on that kind of love and to illustrate to the world what your love really looks like. We pray this all in your holy name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Greetings, and welcome to Etz Heim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages.